following sermon was recorded live at Foundation Church of Fredericksburg in downtown Fredericksburg, Virginia. Good morning, everyone. We're about to begin, so please make your way back to your seats. As you all know, we've been working our way through the epistle of 1 Peter. 1 Peter centers around themes of hope and holiness in a world that is antagonistic towards us as Christians. Though we may suffer, though we may find ourselves as aliens and sojourners in a foreign land, we have hope in Christ and in the holiness that he gives us through sanctification. So we come today to 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Uh, we'll be sticking pretty close, so if you want to just hold that one open, uh, you'll be able to follow along. 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children, if you do good, and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. So my sermon today will be more of a verse-by-verse analysis than usual because I want to make it very clear to anyone listening that I am working from Scripture and not from my own ideas or my own experience or cultural assumptions that we may or may not share. It's very easy to think of a lot of ways for this to go wrong. Many preachers simply dodge texts such as these by only choosing to preach certain topics that they pick ahead of time, but at this church we're committed to preaching straight through books of the Bible, and so we run into things that no one wants to deal with, but this is the Word of God. We have to. And I've certainly heard more than one sermon in which a text such as this is used as a jumping-off point for a stand-up comedy routine about husbands and wives or some sort of marriage advice workshop, but I have nothing like that to offer. Today, I simply want to communicate what the Bible, this particular part of the Bible, has to say to us. So in order to do that, I'd like to lay some groundwork, some assumptions that I'll be having as I work through this text. First, let's look at the context of this passage. The broad context of this passage is in a section in 1 Peter about submission to human institutions. If we look at the broad structure of 1 Peter, we recall that he opens by establishing a foundation upon the gospel, describing how we're born again to a living hope. He then goes on to call us to be holy, as God is holy. And this salvation and this holiness then sets us apart from the world as a people of God. Which brings us then to this broader section about submission to human institutions as a way by which we act out our salvation. You'll recall a few weeks ago in Chapter 2, verses 11 through 12. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And then from there, Peter teaches Christians to submit to our government, to our earthly masters, to our marital roles, and even to those who would make us suffer. So this is helpful, then, to understand that we're in this broader context, as today's passage opens with, likewise. Now, last week's passage, the one immediately preceding, was about servants and masters. 
But we are not to understand that wives are likewise to servants and husbands likewise to masters. Husbands, after all, are told likewise as well. Rather, these are all examples of the various institutions and structures that we live under. We are under a government. Although we do not use the terminology of servants and masters, we all have an employer or customers or a family that we serve to earn our living. And so in a sense, we do have servants and masters. And likewise, those of us who are married, we are, we have husbands and we have wives. These are the institutions that we live under. And the Bible commands us to cooperate as Christians within the rules of these institutions. So rightly understood, this passage is not comparing husbands to masters and wives to servants, but is rather comparing the roles of husbands and wives to the roles that we follow in other institutions. So this brings me then to my second assumption, that marriage is not merely a human institution, but is instituted by God, and by his design is structured in such a way that the husband has authority and ultimate responsibility, and that the wife is to submit to her husband. I can't take the necessary time to defend this thoroughly, but I can provide some scriptural basis. First of all, we see in Genesis, in the creation account, God creates Adam first. Later in the Bible, we read that he was created for Adam. God gave Adam a task with the expectation that he would bring Eve into that and that she would follow his leadership in that responsibility and together they would accomplish what God had given to them. This ordering is further affirmed throughout scripture as God calls men to lead their families in obedience to him. Paul also affirms this order in 1 Corinthians and in Ephesians and in other places. In Ephesians 5, Paul connects the marital order to Christ's relationship with the church, thus proving that this is not merely a cultural artifact, but it is a universal truth, as Christ's relationship to the church is universal and not tied to any particular culture or time, so then is the wife's relationship to the husband. Reversed, vice versa. And so my hope, then, as I deal with this text, is not that I, I prove these things to be true, because, again, this is not the time or the text to do that, but rather that I can present these instructions to husbands and wives in a way that makes this marital structure not only palatable, but desirable. And so this brings us then to our final assumption. I am assuming that, like all scripture, this text contains some cultural artifacts, meaning things that were specific to a certain time or place or author or audience. And from these cultural artifacts, we can glean principles but this passage also contains some direct instructions from which we are to understand commandments. How then do we determine what is universally true versus what is locally true? Now, sometimes we can merely observe from nature what is clearly the case. After all, is it not the case, in general, that wives, in all places, in all times, are concerned with the way that they adorn themselves? And is it not also true that husbands, in all places and in all times, frequently struggle to understand their wives. Some truths are self-evident. Others are not so clear, and so we will need to take care to weigh them out. And so with all that said, let's begin working through the text. The first thing that we perhaps notice is that there are two general sections, one to the wife and one to the husband. And it's also pretty noticeable that the section to wives is much longer, four times longer. Now, be assured that this is not to burden wives or to excuse husbands, but rather this is to be taken as an encouragement. Peter is not only considering wives in general, but he is also considering wives in particular who are in a uniquely challenging situation. 
wives who are married to unbelieving husbands. Both historically and at present, it is vastly more likely, if only one spouse is a believer, that that spouse is the wife. This is a common situation that Peter is understanding. And even to address women at all was substantially out of the norm in that time. In essentially all contemporary literature from that period, exclusively men were considered to be the audience of any written or spoken work. And anything that was written to women was considered to be only for women. And everything that wasn't written only for women was by default for men. So women, I hope that you are encouraged then that Peter takes the time to care for you, to instruct you, to see you, and even to see you in uniquely difficult circumstances that you may find yourselves in. And so then these instructions to women can be divided into three broad themes, each considered under the general heading of a submission. We have encouragement of wives to unbelieving husbands, instructions on the adornment of the body and spirit, and then further encouragement to take hope in sanctification. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. From these few words, we can glean several truths. First, wives are to be subject, which is synonymous with submit to, their own husbands. Not all women to all men. We are here dealing specifically with instructions to those women who are married. Now, does the creation order and our natural law tell us something about the broader expectations of men and women in the world? Certainly. But that is not what is in this text today. Today, we are dealing with instructions to wives regarding their own husbands. And so we very quickly reach the point at which it is necessary to define what submission is. What does it mean to be subject to your husband? Let's start by listing the actual words used in this passage. Be subject, respectful, pure conduct, submitting, obey, call him Lord. Now, some of these terms, perhaps all of them, probably rankle you. And, and if I'm honest, it's, it's, I feel just a tinge of embarrassment listing them all like that. They're not, they're not comfortable words that we like to use. And yet, these are the very words of God. And so we must reckon with them. We must understand them. We must not assume things about them to either overemphasize or reject them out of hand. So when the Bible speaks of submission, it does so universally, regardless of the context, using these very same terms. Be subject, respect, obey. So this text is not describing some kind of special submission that only wives are to partake of. Rather, this text is describing what ordinary Christian submission looks like for a wife. And on that note, then, husbands, are you exemplifying submission for your wives? Are you treating your authorities, your employer, your government, your church leaders, in a way that is submissive and respectful and reflects well on them? Because in the way that you do that, you're setting an example for your wife in relation to you. Your institutions to which you must submit are examples to your wife as she submits to you. And without going into a second sermon on the nature of submission in general, suffice it to say that submission does not mean a lack of disagreement. It does not mean you cannot dissent. It does not mean that you're obligated to obey in sin. It does not mean that you are deserving to be subject to any injustice. And it does not mean that you cannot make use of other means or institutions to do what is right. Just as when the government abuses its authority, I, as a Christian, am free to sue against the unjust law, I am free to protest, or I am free to engage another authority to plead my case, so in marriage, 
is a wife free to make use of whatever means are available to make an appeal against an unjust or abusive husband. In the extreme case, this means law, but it often also means the church or just other believers. Mediation is incredibly valuable, and you should know that we are blessed that Pastor Bobby, in particular, is distinctly skilled at constructive mediation. A while back, Amy and I had asked him to help us talk through a recurring argument that we were having at her request. Our marriage is not hanged by a thread by any means, but we had been having the same argument for several weeks, and it wasn't getting anywhere, and talking to Bobby was immensely helpful. So these means, whether they be large or small, are available to you even as you submit to your husbands. What submission does mean, however, is generally cooperating with and obeying authority in a Christ-like manner. It means deferring final judgment after the time for debate is over. It means not undermining decisions once made. And it means acknowledging that God has instituted authority in general, and specifically the authority of your husband, for your good. Now, I could try to give some kind of explanation as to exactly how this is to play out in your marriage. Like, maybe I would say that the husband has a 51% vote, but any terms that I try to give you are going to be reductive. Marriage is not a voting body by any means, and households distribute labor and areas of expertise very differently, depending on your personality and your gifting and the culture that you live in and, and all manner of things. And so I, I can't tell you exactly how to handle all of this. But I hope that you consider for yourselves, do you think that your marriage, from either the husband's or the wife's perspective, do you think that your marriage involves the wife submitting to her husband? And as I've said before, entire sermon series have been preached on the precise working out of such things, but this is not the time. And those conversations tend to be better had individually between spouses, with a pastor or elder or with other church members to work out in your marriage what does submission to authority look like. So likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Now, surely this is not to say that wives are not to witness to their unbelieving husbands. Of course, we know this is not true. This is not, this is not a command to such wives, but an encouragement. Peter, and therefore also God, shows that he recognizes the difficulty of being married to an unbeliever. Undoubtedly, it is difficult for a husband to be married to an unbelieving wife, but in particular, here, the Christian woman is addressed. In that day, it was perfectly normal to have many gods and to worship many different religions. And it was assumed that the husband's religion would take precedence in the family. The wife would follow her husband's god, and she could add on to it if she wanted. And in fact, many Roman women of the day were also practicing Jews, or at least participated in the Jewish ceremonies, because they so appreciated the way that Jewish tradition and the Torah treated women in comparison to the other things available to them at the time. And many early Christians were these very same women. And so Peter sees that these women are put in a distinctly challenging position, for they are to respect their husbands. But Christianity requires singular allegiance. The very act of being a Christian and ordering one's life with God as the exclusive head over all things was inherently subversive. The very act of being a Christian was undermining. And so a faithful Christian wife might be seen to be rebellious by her husband or by his peers in such a way that any conversation or attempt to witness or a defense of her beliefs would undoubtedly only serve to harden him further. And so Peter offers a very pragmatic and compassionate response. 
Christian sisters, there will be others who preach the word. There will be others who defend the faith. But you, you need only conduct yourself in a way becoming of Christ with respect and purity. God sees you. He sees the challenging situation that you're in. He knows the pressures. He knows your longing for your husband to confess Christ. But you are free from the pressure to convert him. The Lord's will will come to pass in his own time and by his own means, and you are not required to hurry it along. Be at peace. Simply put on your godly adorning and make space for the Holy Spirit and your brothers and sisters in Christ to work. Such advice is undoubtedly applicable in the reverse, although in a slightly different way. Husbands needing to be gentle and patient to avoid making their wives feel like something's being forced upon them. And this is also certainly applicable of the children of unbelieving parents, whether children or adults. So to all of you in such a situation, long-suffering and laboring over unconverted loved ones, and especially to those Christian wives of unconverted husbands, you are displaying the glory of God for us. You are displaying the glory of Christ's suffering as he suffered for us. Our culture tends to solve every problem of suffering by exit. If we don't like something, we, we leave. We leave our job, our church, our marriage, our family. But you, by your patience and your respectfulness and your forbearance, are demonstrating how Jesus so endured our resistance. He did not come to save us by forcible conversion or by deconstructing our worldview and tearing down our arguments. He came to suffer and wait. And so you are a mirror of him. And so in such cases then, wives, how are you to conduct yourself? What does it mean to be respectful and pure in conduct? Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. And this is a textbook example of a situation in which we should take what is obviously a culturally bound directive, convert it to a general principle, and then reapply it to our context. Peter clearly does not intend for the reader to understand that gold jewelry is somehow inherently sinful. You know, is silver not? Is it wrong to braid one's hair? Is it worse to color it? I don't know. These aren't the questions that we're intended to ask, nor that Peter intends to answer. Rather, these are representative examples of what a typical woman of that day would have done to adorn herself. It was common at that time for wealthy women to braid and literally stack her hair into incredibly elaborate styles that were intended to communicate her status and her wealth and her lack of need to labor or sweat. A similar message would be sent with gold jewelry. Anyone who was rich enough to own gold would keep it safe and hidden by wearing it out in public and displaying it on your body. You were essentially saying, I'm so rich that I could afford to lose this. It sends a message. And that message was part of the way that women would adorn themselves. So we're not here addressing the exact set of clothes that are permissible for wives. And in fact, the literal Greek says not to adorn yourself by putting on garments. Unlikely to be intended literally, I would say. But we can look at these representative examples and we can surmise what kind of behavior is targeted, what condition of the heart is instructed. Other translations state the opening phrase differently, and, and examining them can give some insight as to the intent of this general instruction. Your adornment must not be merely external, 
or your beauty should not consist of outward things. These phrasings help fill out the idea that a woman should not emphasize her outward adornment. She should not, as it were, hang her identity on such things, nor expend so much money or time or effort on her outward adornment as to take from her inner adornment or to cause vanity in herself or induce envy in others. Rather, let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. And so is this to say then that modesty and gentleness are exclusive to wives or to women? Of course not. In fact, the only time Jesus ever spoke about his own temperament was to say that he is gentle. But in this particular case, these qualities are given as a contrast to ways in which women often attempt to adorn themselves. In women's lives, modesty often takes the form of physical appearance in a way that is less generally applicable to men. Men are certainly able to be immodest and to flaunt their wealth with jewelry. Certain watches maybe come to mind. But is this not generally more common to women? Exceptions tend to prove the rule. God is not picking on women, but understanding them and their design and their tendencies. God has made you to desire beauty and to be beautiful, which is good. But just as with different tendencies found commonly in men, such desires come with sinful tendencies of their own. Peter cares enough about the women of the church, about the women in this church, to discuss these things. We can see this from the way he affirms a gentle and quiet spirit. These things, in the eyes of God, are very precious. And would you not then want to know about this? If these things are precious in the eyes of God, would you not want the opportunity to receive approval from God? To know that you do not need to be rich to find esteem in his eyes. You do not need to be confident in your appearance. You do not need to adorn yourself with these worldly things, but rather the adornment of the Spirit is attainable by anyone who is in Christ. And that very such Spirit is greatly precious to your Heavenly Father. Now, in the context of the passage, we also observe that these particular virtues of modesty and gentleness are framed to be important in the work of submission. Respectfulness and modesty were virtues that were highly appreciated and praised by male writers of the time, even to the point where certain hairstyles might have indicated promiscuity or a rejection of a husband's leadership over a wife. But Peter here is drawing attention to the fact that often submission means engaging in behavior that brings respect to your husband. You reflect on him, whether you intend to or not. And so then, is he proud to have you attached to his name? Do you make other people think better of him? And even in the case, perhaps especially in the case, that he is not a believer. This is a difficult saying, undoubtedly, because men have we not all made ourselves difficult to honor. Wives, surely you know this better than anyone, except perhaps the Lord himself. Men are strongly incentivized to put forth a particular image, and ideally that is an image that is consistent with our inner character, but an image nonetheless. And our wives are yet the most qualified to see through that. But wives are not called to respect their husband out of denial of his shortcomings, but rather as an opportunity to bear with him, to forgive him, and to cover over sins. I'll discuss this again after the section on husbands, but I'm sure that it is clear by now that both sets of instructions to wives and to husbands have a lot to do with the way that husbands and wives treat each other 
when the other falls short. Nonetheless, we are to forbear and to obey the word. Wives are to respect and submit to their husbands. And Peter concludes his instructions to wives with this encouragement. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. So here Peter ties together submission and adornment into your sanctification, which, as we know from earlier parts of this letter, are a source of great hope for Christians. Submission to your husband and the adorning of your spirit are evidences of your joining in with the people of God, like Sarah and the women of old. Sarah's respect of her husband, even in difficulty, was evidence that she was a follower of God. And by following her example, you too then show yourself to be adopted into God's people, just as she was. Remember earlier in the letter, Peter writes, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. By conforming yourself more and more to God's holiness, which includes all of these things that we've discussed, you are showing yourself and others that you have cast off the foolish old self and the old passions, and you have put on the new self in Christ. Because of this, you have no need to be frightened or lose hope. Although doubts of your salvation may arise, you have evidence of holiness and sanctification. Although some days submission will chafe and even burn, you are being made more godly by the work of Christ. Although you may attempt to approve of yourself through outward adornment, you need never fear the loss of God's desire and approval of a gentle spirit. Although your desire for your husband's salvation may seem hopeless, you have been adopted into a much greater family, joining with Sarah as part of the people of God. And although there will be many days when you feel like you are given an impossible task, be it to submit or in your adornment or with your unbelieving spouse, the Holy Spirit is there with you. And so in all of these things, you become as one of those holy women of old who hoped not in their own assertiveness nor in their adornments nor in the success of their efforts, but to become like them as they hoped in God, as their only hope was in Christ. And so now we move on to the instructions to husbands. As I mentioned before, the instructions to husbands are shorter, consisting of only one sentence, but it contains a number of directives nonetheless. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. We again start this section with likewise. As we saw before, this likewise calls back not to the master-servant relationship immediately proceeding, but to the general instruction to be subject to human institutions. Just as the wife has a role in marriage, so has the husband. As the wife submits to the husband, the husband leads and shepherds the wife. The husband, therefore, has authority, but also responsibility. And frankly, the two cannot be separated. If you have the authorization to make a choice, the consequences of that choice necessarily rest with you. So wives, it may help you to keep this in mind when there is disagreement, that before the throne of God, every person will be called to account for his or her sins, but husbands will also have to account 
for the well-being of their entire household. Now, I am disappointed that the word husband has fallen out of common use except for in reference to the partner of a wife. It used to be that to husband something meant to care for it, to nurture it, to grow and protect it, to carefully preserve and steward it. And we still hear that word every once in a while, talking about animal husbandry, perhaps, which is actually a worthwhile comparison. Not that you are husbanding your wife like you would husband an animal, but rather that you are husbanding your marriage as you would husband a flock. Shepherding, you could even say. As with a flock, the shepherd has authority, and with that authority comes an amount of power. But he also has responsibility. The sheep are in his hands. He has the ability to increase them or to harm them. He can damage the flock, either by extracting too forcefully from them or by neglecting them. A wise shepherd, a wise husband, knows that sometimes he must make hard choices. But he also knows that in order for the flock to survive that hard choice, he must build up good reserves ahead of time. So yes, authority does mean that sometimes you will make costly choices that may even take a toll on your marriage. Hopefully you are making these choices for the greater good and not for your own benefit, but if you are playing the long game and skillfully husbanding your authority in marriage, then you are spending your other time shoring up your marriage so that it is not only fruitful, but ready to endure when submission is hard. And one way that we do this is to live with our wives in an understanding way. Similarly, as to submission, surely understanding is a Christian virtue and not a masculine one. And yet we also recognize that the tendency of husbands is to be quick to speak and quick to act, and that the consequences of husbands failing to be gentle with their wives are often more grave than the reverse. And so we as husbands are called especially to be understanding. And so consider with me all that that word entails. First, we are to see that we are to live in an understanding way with our wives. The role of a husband is not to understand women, but to understand our wives. This means that we are to know them. We are to know their habits, their patterns, their preferences, their weaknesses. And we are to use this knowledge, not for our own gain or to manipulate or overpower them, but for their flourishing. Understanding constitutes both knowledge and wisdom, both observation and experience. And one of the ways, then, that we show this understanding is to honor our wives as the weaker vessel. And this type of language is not comfortable. Again, we're not used to hearing that women are weaker than men. In fact, we're used to hearing that women can do anything men can do. And in many ways, this is true. However, there are some roles which God has given to men by design which women cannot fulfill. Women cannot be husbands, fathers, or pastors. Likewise, men cannot be wives or mothers. But it should be made clear that this text is not referring in any way to quality or worth, but merely to diversity. Men and women were created differently and intended to serve different purposes, which means that, in general, one will be greater in some areas, and then necessarily the other will be lesser in those areas. And the reverse is true. So at the very least, it should be clear that the word weaker is true, at least in a physical sense. Statistically, the average man, the 50th percentile, can lift more than 99% of women. They have bigger muscles, they're taller, they have denser bones. Men are just 
taller and stronger than women. And so part of living with your wife in an understanding way is recognizing that there are things she cannot do and that there are certain precautions you must take so as to not hurt her with your strength. One of the older commentaries that I read also said that husbands are not, quote, to become frustrated when their wives are slow of foot, which I found to be hilarious because I walk a great deal faster than Amy, and we have argued about that before. <laughs> but I don't actually think that physicality is the only subject of this phrase. The word used vessel connotes an object intended for some particular use. We see it also in Romans 9, for example, when the potter makes one vessel for honorable use and one for dishonorable use. That term vessel, maybe it means you know, a tool or, or an object that is intended to be put to use. And so likewise, I think in this text, the implication is that one vessel is for tougher use and one is for more delicate use. Consider also the fact that very little about God's commands here to husbands or wives have anything to do with physical strength. And so I think there's another concept wrapped up in this. And without going too far afield, I'll just explain this in modern terms. In the field of psychology, there's something called the Big Five Personality Inventory. It scores you from 0 to 100 in five major behavioral traits. By definition, the average is in the middle. And the distinctives of your personality are described by those traits in which you deviate from the middle. So in this research, it has been found that in general, women land a good bit further than men in the direction of what they call neuroticism. That's referring to anxiety, worry, and concern with what others think of you. Now women, not to worry, you also generally lean more towards conscientiousness, openness to new things, and agreeableness. So it's not a judgment, it's an observation. But I think that this roughly corresponds with our experience and the buckets that we use to group people in. Stereotypes are not usually true, but they do often rhyme with the truth. And so with this in mind, then, husbands, the command to show honor to our wives takes on a significantly broader scope. We are to understand our wives and do our best to assuage their worries. This means providing steadily. It means doing what needs to be done to develop trust and assurance that you aren't going anywhere. It means communicating acceptance and commitment unconditionally. It means being patient when anxieties seem unreasonable. It means not hastily invoking authority to push a decision through, but playing a longer game, guiding gently, taking replies along the way. It means never speaking ill of her for selfish satisfaction or complaining about having to account for her role. Nothing about this phrase, weaker vessel, is meant to construe anything but additional responsibility for the husband. We are to be more gentle. We are to show more honor and to be more understanding. And so just as I ask the wives about respect and submission, so I ask the husbands, does your wife think that you honor her? Does your wife think that you understand her? Is she pleased to submit to your authority? And do you cause others to think better of her? And lastly, we are seen to do these things lest our prayers be hindered. And does this literally mean that God will be less inclined to your prayers if you mishandle your relationship with your wife? I think in some sense, yes. We know that the Lord is always listening, but also consider the parable of the talents. The master gives his money to the servants with the expectation that they will grow and steward their resources. Husbands, you have been given a wife to husband. So when you go to the master's feet in prayer, do you not think that he is interested in how his investment is coming along under your care? 
He has entrusted things to you for which he wants an account. But even not in the literal sense, we must understand that our marriage is an integral part of our sanctification. You cannot grow as a godly man if you are married, if you are not also growing as a godly husband. And so if you desire to grow in prayer and holiness and sanctification, understanding with your wife must be part of that. And so this leaves us then with a final word, but a foundational one. We are to be understanding with our wives since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. Husbands and wives, men and women, are heirs together of the grace of life. So what does it mean then to be married as joint heirs? First and most obviously, we are equal in salvation. No husband nor wife can save their spouse, but only the death, resurrection, and election of Jesus. And likewise, no amount of difference in marital role adds or removes anything from salvation. In Galatians, we're told that there is no male or female Jew or Greek in Christ. The blood of Jesus Christ washes us all equally. We are all sinners equally and washed clean equally. But this glorious reality of salvation also draws in sharp relief our current incomplete state, a state of frailty, a state of sinfulness. And we see in this passage that this state is known to God. He understands our sin and frailty and gives us these instructions with that in mind. Wives, would it not be a joy to submit to your husbands if they were always godly, understanding you in every way and being gentle at all times? And husbands, would we not so much more desire to understand our wives if they were always respectful of us? We must bear with one another even as we ourselves need to be born. We must repent often to one another and to the Lord. Because the hard truth is, we always marry the wrong person. But really, as Christians, we need to think about that the other way around. We come to discover, hopefully quickly in our marriages, that we are the wrong person. We are both being sanctified. And yet marriage is an institution of great intimacy. And that intimacy brings with it great knowledge of sin. We know each other's weaknesses more than anyone else except for Jesus. And it is for that reason that we are so grateful to Christ for his sacrifice. He submits to the Father's authority. He is understanding. He is gentle. He honors us even though we're undeserving. And he paid the price for our lack and our rebellion. And it is for that reason that we are now heirs together, having received both his death and his life, and now being made more holy every day. And a final word to those dear brothers and sisters with unbelieving spouses, know that you are not unseen. The Lord has accounted for you. Please remain faithful. Be patient. Have hope and be heartened by the evidence of your own sanctification. That evidence is seen, and it speaks volumes to your spouse. The Lord is with you. And to all of us, the final conclusion comes down to this. We do not submit or understand or respect or honor because we love our spouse. We do. But we do these things because we love Jesus. We do these things because we are being made holy. 
by the Holy Spirit within us. We bear with one another because we know that God is continually making us more sanctified. And we do all of these things because we, husbands and wives, men and women, are heirs together in Christ. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for marriage, for men and for women, and for the dear partnership between them that you have created to fill and flourish the earth. Father, we repent for the myriad ways that we have tarnished and damaged that institution, that we have brought shame to you by failing to obey your commands. And yet, Father, we thank you for the sacrifice of Jesus that has covered over that rebellion and that failure. We thank you that by the power of the Holy Spirit that is within us, we have the ability to submit and to obey and to understand and to honor in the way that Christ set an example for us. Thank you that we are heirs together for the glorious inheritance of your kingdom. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. All sermons are released under a Creative Commons, non-commercial, no derivative 3.0 license. If you would like to learn more or listen to past sermons, please visit us at foundationfxbg.com. Child of weakness, watch and pray.